All right, let's pray. Father, we just sang that our life is hid in Christ. For you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the very righteousness of Christ hidden in him, in him. We thank you that we can do nothing to improve the sainthood that you have bestowed on us, that you have declared us holy in your sight and as blameless and as holy and as righteous as your own son. And thank you that what you have declared us to be in our position, you have committed yourself to making us in practice. And thank you that you have not abandoned us. You've sent us the Holy Spirit as our helper, one to give us his word that he inspired for us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for the precious word that you wrote through all the men that gave us these 66 books. And we ask that as we study what you have given us on this area of money, that our hearts would be in tuned, that we would learn, that those of us who are exceeding, that we might excel even more, and those who are discouraged in the financial realm, that they might grasp and get a sense of hope. I pray that from this course, you would raise up more financial counselors in our church, for you know that we need them. And I pray that uh, each uh, person, when we are finished, will be glad that they've been here. So I commit our time to you, the weeks ahead, I ask you to empower me and fill me with your spirit, in Jesus' holy name, amen. Now tonight, as much as anything, is an introduction as we consider section one, stewardship. I'm not sure we'll get through the whole thing, but we might, and if not, we'll pick up where we left off and start section two next week. Some sections will take us two or three weeks, realistically, to get through. Now, if you do have questions as we walk through the course, you can feel free to write them down and just leave them here in the pulpit, and I will do my best. This is being taped, and we want people who have questions to have them heard, especially for those who are live streaming as well. So by way of introduction, page two there on your handout, uh, we are living in a unique time in American history such that if there was ever a time for God's people to be prepared financially, it's now. As this course is being taught, for many Americans, the economy looks great. Well, the truth is, is that our federal government is on an irresponsible and unsustainable fiscal path that is literally going to bankrupt our nation. Our government, just take last year, our government in the last year has collected record amounts of tax revenue. Last year, the last calendar year, we collected more money ever than in any other previous year in American history. Yet, national debt expenses are growing faster. We spent still more than we took in with a current debt of $22 trillion. That's not million, that's not billion, that's trillion with a T. $22 trillion. Apart from what we typically refer to as the national debt, this number excludes the $106 trillion in unfunded Social Security and Medicare that comes out of your weekly paychecks. But sadly, that is used for other expenses. And I think most of you know that when they deduct Medicare and Social Security out of your paycheck, it's not like it's in some bank account just waiting for you to get old and then they're going to pull it out. They spend it all. 100% of it. And uh, they are paying your Social Security and other things, if you're at that level in your life, through the other revenue that's coming. That is going to point to a disaster at some point. 
the challenge with dealing with our nation's debt problem is really twofold. First, most families do not see how this issue of massive debts really even affects them, and for this reason, they do not think much about it and are not concerned. I'd say that's generally true for most Americans. But in addition, politicians from both parties keep ducking hard choices, and so they tend to keep giving us excuses as to why we shouldn't be concerned about it. Businesses and individuals often assess their economic worth and health by comparing the assets that they own outright with the amount of money that they owe. That's usually a fairly good measure of your own personal economic business health. Likewise, governments and nations assess their overall economic health by comparing the amount of money they are borrowing against their gross domestic product, GDP. That's the measurement the government uses to assess their health what they are borrowing against gross domestic product. GDP is one of the primary indicators used to gauge the health of a country's economy because it represents, and here's really a definition, the total dollar value of all goods and services produced over a specific time period. And so this is typically what we refer to as the size of the economy, right? The highest our debt has ever been when indexed to GDP was just after World War II when our debt was 106% of the size of the economy. Now, some would say, boy, that was massive. But you also need to understand that the national debt in World War II, 1945, was 225 million, not billion, million. Now, it's kind of rocketing to consider just the difference between a million and a billion and a trillion. The numbers were obviously huge. A thousand billion is one trillion. We were only in the millions of dollars in debt then. However, due to the time of fiscally conservative government policies, it quickly fell in the years that followed as war costs subsided, the economy boomed, debts were paid off, and the budget was once again near balanced. Today, the debt is 78% of GDP almost double what it was just before the Great Recession. By the Great Recession, that's a term most of you know, people would date that 2007, 2008. It's almost double what it was before the Great Recession, and it is projected to pass the World War II high in seven years. Says who? Says the Government Accounting Office. So this is not some bipartisan number, this is what our government says. Another difference between World War II and today is the problem of individual debt that is typically divided between what is called consumer and household debt. So that's another major difference, individual debt. And when you think of individual debt, it really comes into two categories, what we call consumer debt and household debt, all right? So let's define some terms here. Consumer debt consists of debts that are owed as a result of purchasing goods that are consumable and or do not appreciate. So that's typically how that's defined. What you bought uh, is consumable or doesn't appreciate, which typically includes such things as credit card debt, payday loans, and other consumer finance loans, et cetera. We could add many more. In January of 2019, consumer debt reached a new high of $12.8 trillion, the highest it has ever been since the Great Recession of 2008. So have we learned any lessons since 2008? And we're not. Things are getting worse. 
in some of the tools that we once had to save us out of the 2008 Great Recession have been used up. The government kept lowering the interest rates. And of course, you would think that might spur some people to say, okay, I'm going to pay it all off. And some did. And there was a couple of years after that where Americans began to pay down their debt. But now they've borrowed on this great interest low money. But that stimulated the economy, as some other things we'll look at when we come to the section on debt. Um, so the term household debt is used to describe both consumer debt along with mortgage debt that is ideally considered a form of investment debt. So household debt takes all the consumer debt and then it adds to it what is typically uh, mortgage debt, which is you know, considered as investment debt. So some fine differences there in terms of how economists define it, but that's how the terms are being used. A recent headline noted 40% of Americans are unable to handle an unexpected $400 expense, with many Americans living paycheck to paycheck. While mortgage debt has dropped since the Great Recession due to the devaluation of property, non-mortgage debt is now higher than in 2007. To stimulate the economy, the government has habitually lowered interest rates, which has led many Americans to borrow even more. Do you know that if interest went up five points right now, the United States government would default on its payments that we make? That's why no one wants the interest to go up. We would default. Now, in American history, we have never, ever defaulted on money that we've borrowed from other countries. Never have. That's what's made America such a great investment. But interest can only go up so high where we are in serious trouble. So to stimulate the economy, they have habitually lowered interest rates, which has led many Americans to borrow even more, while at the same time inflating costs in certain sectors of the economy. For example, according to Experian, credit card debt now exceeds $1.03 trillion, the highest it has ever been since 2008, with an average of $8,640 per household, and 71% of Americans carry a revolving balance. So 71% of Americans do not pay off their credit card debts in full every month. Student loan debt is now the second highest household debt category behind mortgage debt. So number one is mortgage debt when we think of household debt. Number two is student loan debt. And it totals now $1.56 trillion with the average student owing $28,650. I had a young couple in my office a few years ago. They've since moved to Charleston, but together they had $178,000 in student loan debt. And they were trying to figure out how can we get out from underneath this. It's huge. And then you have American politicians who want to tell us we can go to school for free. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to, I know it won't work. There ain't nothing for free in this life. Someone is going to pay for it. And so uh, as of February, number 23, Americans now have car loans totaling $1.129 trillion with an average for a new car, and these, this is, these are dealership prices, not Joe's used cars. New car averaging $31,000, some change. Used car, $21,000, and some change. 
and a record, this was just reported last, actually in February, 7 million people now are 90 or more days behind on their auto loan payments, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The solution to both our governments and household financial problems are very simple. You just stop spending money that we do not have. Unfortunately, for the last 44 out of 46 years, expenses have exceeded revenue and we are escalating the pace. The Government Accounting Office used to say that by 2035, 100% of the budget would go to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid and interest on the debt, leaving no money for military roads, education, or anything else they fund. That's how serious the problem is. 2035, all these baby boomers are coming into Social Security and everything else, and all we'll be able to do is pay entitlements and interest on the loan, and that's assuming interest rates stay down, and we'll have zero money to build roads and fund the military. But listen, the primary function of a government, as we've studied in some of our sessions on Sunday morning, is not to provide a retirement fund for people. Now, we got into that under FDR. That's a whole other banana. But it's primarily to protect the nation, to uphold good and put down evil. Our military should be our highest priority. But if we don't have money to fund the military, we're in big trouble. So the Government Accounting Office keeps lowering the year, and now if nothing changes, and of course we're now pursuing, some say, not all of them, it's not a unanimous voice, but many of them say it's 2025. It's no longer 2035, it's 2025. So that's about, you know, six, seven years from now, somewhere in there. Unless we stop, we are going to reach a point of no return where it is mathematically impossible to correct the current course of action. If you're on the Niagara River heading towards Niagara Falls, there is a point on the river where there's cautions and everything else. Do not go past this point because once you go past that point, there's no way you can turn back. The, the pull is so strong, you're going to go over the falls. And we're headed towards that point economically. Most economists, 29, tell us that the only possible way our nation can, can avert default will be through massive spending cuts on the order of 30% to programs like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid comprising 62% of the budget. So when we talk about you know, the national debt and spending and all that, just remember 62% of the budget is entitlements. So if you're going to cut anywhere, you're going to have to cut in those realms. And in some senses, I mean, that's nothing but stealing. So some person is, you know, expecting a, a Social Security check for $800 a month, and that's cut 30%. That's the kind of uh, decisions that are going to have to be made unless someone has the guts to make some changes. The day will come when our nation, and no doubt many others, will no longer be able to continue borrowing from tomorrow to pay for today's costs. For decades, many have warned us that we will pay a steep price for these massive debts. But just because we have not yet does not mean that we never will. The history of nations and countries, case in point, Greece and Venezuela, prove the truth. 
You want to see what it's like? Look at Venezuela. Look at Greece. It's total chaos. It's rioting in the streets of Venezuela. Ed spent how many years? 18 years there? 17 years there. It is a total disaster. But when you spend money you don't have long enough, that's where it's headed. And you have some Western European nations, forget the South American countries, Western European nations like Greece and some others, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, that are headed towards default. And if they default, there will be a spiral effect across Western Europe. God promises that one cannot habitually spend money that has not yet been earned, because if you guarantee a debt that you cannot pay, as Proverbs says, even your bed will be snatched from under you. I mean, it's just the law of God. You cannot spend money you have not earned. And if you spend money you have not earned, someone is going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it in interest. Your children are going to pay for it. Or you may pay for it in the devaluation of money. Somehow or another... Debts must be paid either through massive tax increases or through an invisible tax called inflation, which devalues the money that you have. And so one of the tools, of course, during the Great Recession was QE3 and QE4 that the government employed. They printed millions, billions of dollars. Run the presses, buddy. Run them up. (laughs) And we spent money we didn't have, and we say, well, that was a debt to ourselves." But you can only do that so long. This course is important so that as God's people, we might be prepared, not simply in caring for our own families, but in ministry to the lost people of this world in the same way that God used Joseph as recorded in Genesis chapter 41. If you remember, Joseph had risen to the position of quote-unquote prime minister, and he was used of God through the seven years of plenty that came to the land of Egypt to sustain that nation and others around it through the seven years of famine that followed. We may be in an elusive time of seven years of plenty, but if our government or we as Christians do not make the necessary mid-course corrections, then we will suffer more than we will be able to help when these difficult times come. And by the way, those difficult times can certainly be used of God. I could see God using a total economic crash to bring tens of thousands to Christ before the church is raptured. Then again, the church could be raptured, and I could see a total economic crash, and it would bring the one world economy together that much faster. So God is in control. He's sovereign. He's on his throne. The, fin- uh, the financial problems facing our country... And now our world through the global economy are so large, I do not think it is a matter of if this debt crisis will erupt, but only a matter of when this ticking financial time bomb will explode. Now, there are some presidents and leaders who have tried to do something about it. I remember at the time my son was working in, uh, George, for George W. Bush and his administration, and the president at the time went to 41 nations trying to convince leaders that we need to do something over the entitlement program or we are headed for a disaster. It just fell on deaf ears. So it has to be more than a single leader. It has to be our joint 
political leadership in our nation that makes some very difficult decisions. And you would think, well, didn't they have enough money to spend last year or the year before? And we spend, we're bringing in records amount of revenue, but we're spending more than we take in. You just can't do that forever. This course entitled Finances God's Way will be valuable to you personally and to those whom you teach in obedience to the Great Commission. Now, I am hoping that some of you who... um, have seen uh, normalcy in your financial life, might become financial counselors for us. In the early years, I did all the financial counselors. When we had 150, 170 people, I could do that. But we have a number of couples who help me with financial counseling. But I would love to see another half dozen, dozen couples raised up who could be financial counselors. That presupposes they understand God's truth as we're going to examine the Scriptures in this course. But many people come to the church in financial difficulty, but it's very rewarding sometimes. There's a couple that comes every Sunday morning. I look at him, and sometimes he smiles at me, and he came into the office in the mid-1990s, and he was $101,000 in debt. And I'm not talking about his mortgage. I'm talking about credit cards, this debt, that debt, a grand piano in his house, I remember the day he came up to me, he said, it's all paid off, 100%. People can turn around. I remember a young Marine, Randy, who is $28,000, and sometimes communities pray on Marines. You know, they, I have a son who's a captain in the Marine Corps, and he's trying to help some of these young guys who, you know, they're getting ready to buy some car at this, you know, astronomical, you know, 21% interest. And they just don't even know what they're doing, or they buy a piece of furniture or a washer or dryer. And, and, and so sometimes, you know, you're just able to help someone and to steer a lot of problems away. But we can't impart what we don't possess ourselves. Fathers and mothers have the responsibility to teach their children what God says on this subject. This Subjects such as stewardship, saving, giving, debt, investing, planning. I mean, where, where do the kids learn that? Is it like one day they leave your home, they've graduated from high school or college, and they're out on their own, all of a sudden, they know how to make a budget, they know what the Bible says about giving, saving, investing, budgeting. We have to teach them. That's our responsibility. So we need to help them in that whole process. Now that America and our world is immersed in a post-Christian culture, Unless our children and grandchildren are intentionally taught the principles found in God's Word, they will more than likely model their finances around the, or after the world around us. If at all possible, if your children, again, are 13 or older, you should have them attend this course or teach them at home using the website downloads. For those that are live broadcasting, it's searchthescriptures.org. You can get the phone app, and we will list, put them on there as well. So the website downloads so that their minds might be renewed and so that they will find God's good and acceptable and perfect will. That's what it is. It's good and acceptable and perfect. That's what Romans tells us. So just by way of introduction, money. Roman number one, money is a major theme in the Bible. In the Bible, there are about 500 verses on prayer. In the Bible, there are about 500 verses on faith. But in the Scripture, there is over 2,000 verses on money. So it's a major, major theme. God often measures our spiritual temperature by how we handle our finances. And when you look at people today, there are basically two economies in which they live, two economies 
and two kinds of people, what we would call the natural man and what we would call the Christian man. So in the broadest sense, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are lost and those who are saved. Listen to what God says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. A natural man, Jude in verse 19 says, a natural man, he says, is devoid of the Spirit. It's the way we come into this world naturally. We are physically alive, but we are devoid of the Spirit. We are spiritually dead, and so we must be born twice for changes to take place. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. To embrace spiritual truth, to embrace... God's financial principles, for the most part, you need to be born again. Now, sometimes there are people who will teach biblical principles and people will follow them for a time, but unless they are born again, they will not typically follow them as a way of life. But if you believe, no, God says this about giving, God says this about saving, God says this about debt, then it really changes how you function in the day-to-day realm. But he who is spiritual, that's the born-again person, he appraises all things. So two kinds of people, natural versus the Christian. Uh, Jesus, of course, in Matthew 7, uh, speaks of two kinds of builders. It's a beautiful close to the most powerful sermon recorded in the Word of God. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Same storm, two totally different effects. So there's a natural man versus a Christian man. B, there's God's economy versus the world's economy. God's economy versus the world's economy. Think about this. In the area of financial security, the world would say it comes from how much you've accumulated. But the Bible would say it comes from God. And we'll delineate and analyze all these things here in this list through the course. The mindset of the average unsaved man is on earthly things where the believer who's living under God's economy, his mindset is on heavenly things. But a lot of Christians aren't, they don't have a heavenly mindset. They're so consumed with the financial problems they have. They're really not free in their mind and heart and spirit in a lot of ways to invest in God's kingdom. Possessions, the world says it's all mine. The believer says it's all God's, 100% God's. In terms of talents, gifts, The world would say they're inherited. The Bible would teach, no, everything you have is God-given. In terms of treasure, uh, in the world's economy, it will rot and can be stolen. That's why Jesus warned us about not laying up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Where in God's economy, it does not rot and it is eternally safe. In the world's economy, 
Most people spend their whole life acquiring things. And how do they assess their life in the end? By what they own. We say, oh, that guy was really successful. I mean, look how much money he accumulated. Look how big a house he lives. Look at the car he drives. He's successful. Oh, that scumbag over there. He's got nothing. He's a failure. When what we may discover is the guy whom the world views as a failure, it may be actually be a king in the coming kingdom. In terms of standards, one is set by others, the world around us, for the believer by God's word. Goals, they're very short range, 100 years at best, or for the person living in God's economy, they're very long range, they are eternal. So, have you ever wondered why so many Christians seem to be frustrated and living in financial bondage? Well, the answer is pretty simple. They're living in the world's economy and not God's economy. And many times it's out of ignorance. Again, when you're born again, doesn't mean that things automatically change. You have the capacity to change, but the Holy Spirit uses a renewed mind the way you your, your thinking changes, and as your mind is renewed, you are metamorphosized, to quote the book of Romans. And he uses that word, metamorphosis. You know the process that a caterpillar goes through to become a beautiful butterfly. And God speaks of the believer with a renewed mind of being changed from the inside out. Most of God's people are not living any different from most non-Christians in respect to handling money. Uh, let's look at Luke chapter 16. Turn there for just a moment. Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Jesus had just uh, pronounced, uh, if you know this chapter, he, he sends out the 70. Um, they uh, come back and they report, and uh, it's an exciting time for him. And then he... Um, he pronounces some woes on three cities and what we call the evangelical triangle there in the first century horizon, uh, Bethsaida and Capernaum, where all these miracles were done, but it, it didn't lead to repentance as you would have thought. Um, Luke 16, I said, and beginning now, if you will, in verse 14. Let me just start verse 14. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So here are the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're characterized as loving money. And Jesus said, you justify yourselves in the, in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. In other words, the things that the world highly, highly, highly values, God doesn't always value. And so if you back up to the parable that he makes the application from, uh, if you uh, look back, if you will, in verse 1. Now, he was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had, lay, who had a manager, and his manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Uh, some of your translations say the rich man had a steward. Um, and he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, of your stewardship, for you can no longer be manager." So the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? 
I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I will do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So here's a guy, he he knows he's going to lose his job. It's a settled deal. And so he's trying to figure out, well, what can I do to really, you know, cover my own skin? And so in his mind, he said, I'm not strong enough to dig ditches for a living. I'm certainly not going to be one of these guys who go around begging. So I know what I'll do. And so verse 5, he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? hundred measures of oil. He said, then I'm take your bill and sit down and write him 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. And so his master praised the unrighteous manager. You see what he's doing? He goes to Joe Schmo. Joe Schmo, of whom he has managed the debt for his master, owes his master $1,000. He said, Joe, I got a deal for you today. I'm going to cut your bill from $1,000 to $800. Come up today and we'll clear your account. Man, that's motivating. Goes to someone else and he owes his manager $500. He said, I'm going to really cut you a deal. I'm going to cut your bill to $100 today, and your debt will be cleared. Oh, yeah, man, let's do it. And so his master praised the unrighteous steward. Why? Because he acted shrewdly. And then Jesus said, for the sons of this age, unbelievers, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Make friends for yourself by the means of worldly riches, some of your translations say. Some say by the mammon of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus is saying in an unbelieving world, they use money in such a way to make temporal friends. So when this guy lost his job and he had made some friends by cutting some deals, he had a place to go. His friends were going to take care of him. Of course, you can come stay here for the night. And Jesus is saying, what I want you to do is I want you to use worldly riches in such a way that you might make eternal friends. That when you enter into the kingdom of God, there will be people there because of the way you manage God's money. And then he said, he was faithful in a very little thing, is faithful also in much. And he was unrighteous in a very little thing, is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, and that's how God describes the money of this world, who will entrust true riches to you? In other words, if you can't manage the $1,000 that God gave you this week, then why should God entrust to you something that is of greater eternal value? So we're going to see throughout this course that there's a correlation between the way we manage worldly riches and God allowing us to invest in eternity. And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, and this becomes a critical point, do you view your money as yours or God's? Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And then he says, now the Pharisees who are lovers of money were listening to him. Their perspective was warped. Question, why are we not, why, what are we commanded not to do in Romans 12 too? You know Romans 12 too. And do not be conformed to this world. 
Uh, the J.B. Phillips was a translation that was done in 1951 in London, one of the first paraphrased translations done, and Phillips renders it, do not allow this world to shape you into its mold. So someone is going to shape you. Now, who's running the world system? Well, Ephesians 2 says the prince of the power of the air is energizing the sons of disobedience. So Satan is energizing an unbelieving world, key people who shape policies and many things. So we have to ask, who's going to shape me? Is God's word going to be my plumb line or is it just the culture around us? And the further the culture gets away from the scripture, because now we are a post-Christian country. There's no question. People were afraid to use that term 10, 15 years ago. We are. It's just reality. We are a post-Christian nation. And so what used to drive a lot of the decisions in our nation no longer drive us. So we're told not to let the world's philosophy of finances shape our goals. So you have to ask yourself, where have I learned my financial principles? I've either gotten it from the world or I've gotten it from God's word. There's no in-between. Here are some of or all of the following that may characterize someone who's living, say, in the world's economy. They find ultimate security in the things they have. They abuse the use of credit and debt. We'll talk about the wrong and right use of those things. They live beyond his means. He's financially frustrated due to a lack of direction. Never seems to have enough and always wants more. Looks for quick solutions or get rich quick schemes. Little desire to give to the Lord's work. No savings or often they hoard money usually on one end or the other of the spectrum. Guilt feelings in the realm of money. They're often in bondage and not free concerning the things of the world. But someone who's living in God's economy, they find their ultimate security in God alone. They control or avoid the use of credit and debt. They live within their means. So if God gives you $50,000 to live on this year, you don't spend sixty. You live within your means. He has clearly established goals. We'll talk about the biblical basis for goal setting. He is content on the inside, inwardly. He's a generous giver. He's a consistent saver. No guilt feelings for how money is managed. And he's free concerning the things of the world. So you want to again ask, well, which economy are you in? And the economy in which we are living will be reflected in three ways that we use money. There's only three ways we can use money. We spend it, we save it, we give it. Boom, that's it. We spend it, we can save it, and we can give it. Now, according to most surveys I have read, most evangelicals give about 3% of their income to the work of the Lord. In most churches, you will find the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people give 80% of the budget, while 80% of the people will give 20% of the budget. So here's a little chart I've made. At the bottom, it goes from the bottom up, you have money. What can you do with it? You can give, save, and spend. If you give it, it's stored up in heaven. If you save it, with that money you've saved, you can give, save, spend, or lose it. Um, and so on all the way through. So you, you want to ask, you know, which economy am I living in? So you might want to do some analysis, and you'll be able to do this really plainly by the time we come to the end of the course, if you go all the way through it um, and actually make a budget. How have I used my money during the last 12 months? How much did I give? How much did I save? How much did I spend? Depending on how we use money, we'll determine whether or not we'll ever experience true financial freedom. 
So take a moment, just pause for a second, and just ask this, answer this question in your mind. How would you define financial freedom? Just sit there for a moment. Financial freedom is, and give yourself a definition. Now, for time's sake, I won't bring you up to the microphones and but these are some answers that people have given me in years past when I've done the seminar. They've even written them down on cards, and we've read them because a lot of people want to remain anonymous. Um, one person says, to be able to do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. Well, the biblical response would be, God hasn't given us complete freedom to do whatever we want with our life. That's a very self-centered definition of financial freedom and not obviously very God-centered. Some would say, well, financial freedom is not having to worry about money. Well, that has a ring of truth to it. For Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing. And certainly God doesn't want us to be anxious and worried about money. However, some people never worry about money and their finances, based on the scriptural definition, are still disastrous. They're still living under the world's economy, though they don't worry about money. Some would say, well, financial freedom is being able to buy whatever I want to buy. Again, self-centered response. Someone else wrote on one of the seminars, being financially independent. Well, again, there's nothing wrong with wealth, but in many cases, financial independence can also mean independence from God. And we'll see that later on in the course. So let's talk about financial freedom, what it is not, and then what it is. Point A, what financial freedom is not. Number one, it is not wealth and it is not external. It's not wealth, it's not external. Again, this is by introduction. We're going to hone through all of these principles carefully with various scriptures to support them as we work through the course. What financial freedom is. True financial freedom is based on being filled with the Holy Spirit as you operate your life on the principles found in scripture. So one, you have to know what God says, but then to do what God says, you need the help of the Holy Spirit to pull it off. Question, how can a Christian who is presently living in the world's economy begin living in God's economy? How can he become financially free? And the answer is found in understanding and applying five principles necessary to mastering your money. And this is what the course will be based on. The first principle is the Christian is a steward. So we're going to talk about stewardship. You know, most people, when they think of stewardship, they think, oh, the church wants my money. But the definition of stewardship in the Bible is very, very broad, and it covers and encompasses a number of different areas. Money is just one. But we're going to look at the Christian as a steward. We're going to look at the Christian as a giver. What does the Bible really say about giving? We're going to, we're going to really hone some, a large area of issues Everything from prosperity, theology, that you got your Joel Olstein and this guy, my wife showed me this picture this week of some preacher in Houston. He's got $5,000 sneakers on. And he's bragging about his $5,000 sneakers. So we're going to do everything from, you Google it, you can see the guy's pictures. They don't even look like sneakers to me. But anyway, uh, and they look awful uncomfortable. But, um, but we, will, we will look at prosperity theology and the fallacy and the evil behind it. We'll look at the Christian as a saver. What does God say about saving? You see, some people think, well, you know, it's just about, you know, giving a tithe. No, tithing is one dimension of the whole financial picture. 
God says part of our responsibility is to save. Some people say, I can't save. Everybody can save. I'll say, can you save a dollar this week? Oh, I can save a dollar. Okay, so you can save something. So, so we're at a starting point, all right? So it's a matter of how much can we save. We're going to look at the Christian as no man's debtor. If you're in debt, you're going to learn how to get out of debt. And if you're a financial counselor, you're going to be able to help other people to get out of debt. And I tell people all the time, you do not have a plan until you can tell me the month and year that you will be debt-free. Now, we start with consumer debt, and then we'll move to mortgage debt. I will show you how the average American potentially could pay their house off in 17 to 18 years. There was a time in early America where you couldn't get longer than a 15-year loan. And until almost the late 1980s in Canada, you couldn't get longer than a 15-year loan. And then we went to 30-year notes and so forth. Um, so we'll talk about how to get out of debt in every dimension. Your, your children need to know how to pay down a mortgage. Where do they learn that? They, they have to learn that from someone or they're just going to live in the world's economy and do it the world's way. Then we'll talk about the Christian as a planner. What does God say about planning and preparing? And it will take a different twist than it ever has in the past because I do think there are some things that, uh, some steps that we need to take if indeed, you know, we have a six or seven year window before the economy crashes. Again, maybe, maybe our president's going to stand up and say, you know, this debt problem is huge, and he's going to get on his bully pulpit, he can't do it alone, and, and put such pressure through the American people and the politicians that we're going to, you know, one, have a balanced budget and, and not spend more than we take in and, and begin to cut costs. But if, if that doesn't happen, we're headed for a total financial disaster like we have never seen in American history. It will make the Great Depression look mild. So how are we going to prepare for that as Christians if indeed that time comes? So these are the five principles that we'll study for operating in God's economy. So we'll pick it up here next week on page 9. The Christian is a steward. We thank you, Father. I thank you so much for these who uh, committed themselves to the Easter Blitz, to the homes that were visited, and some of those cards are still sitting on kitchen tables and on counters and on refrigerators, and, and we know that often in years past, we've seen people months later come because of this Easter Blitz invitation. We pray that you'd work uh, in the hearts of people across the community. We know that no one can come to you unless you draw them. We ask for the many that came to the extravaganza, the many families who brought their little children that you would give us an opportunity to minister to them and the many visitors who came last week, that you would touch hearts and bring people to yourself. Father, we do rejoice above all that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And for someone who may be listening who does not have that assurance, I pray that you would do a work in their heart and bring them to genuine and real faith. We love you, our Father. We thank you that the things that matter in life have already been settled for most of us, that we have an eternity to look forward to, 
May our perspective be honed in that direction. May we seek to lay up treasure not on earth but in heaven. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.